hope that video is helpful in drawing together uh, not just some of the things that we think about at Easter, uh, Jesus' death and his resurrection, uh, but how Easter fits into the whole Bible story, uh, starting at creation, uh, pointing forward to eternity. And at the center of it all, Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again. And it confronts us uh, with that question that Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Well, tonight we're going to look at the book of Acts, chapter 17, and we're going to see how God, the God of heaven and earth, answers that question. Who does God say Jesus is? Uh, turn with me to Acts 17. Uh, we're going to read uh, from verse 1 uh, to 34. If you've got one of the uh, church Bibles, the red ones, it's on page 926. So the scene is in Athens, uh, Greece. The Apostle Paul has arrived there on one of his missionary journeys uh, to spread the good news of Jesus. He's waiting for his companions to join him. And in the meantime, he gets busy. Acts 17. We're not going to start at verse 1. Uh, we're going to start at verse 16. Uh, there we go. Let's press fast forward. Uh, now, while Paul was waiting for them, his companions, at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own prophets have said, for we indeed, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image formed by the art and imagination of man. To times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard, that, heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among, him, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at his word. Father, we thank you that you are the God who speaks. Thank you that you have something to say to us tonight. Lord, we think back to that uh, first Easter Sunday in the evening. Uh, the Lord Jesus explained how the whole Bible speaks of him. And yet his disciples weren't able to recognize him until their eyes were opened. Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit to open our eyes to the Lord Jesus this evening. Lord, please help us to see what you have to say about him. And please help us to respond as he deserves. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the enormous claim that the Bible makes. One day, Jesus, a human being like you and me, was dead, his lifeless body lying in the grave. But God didn't leave him there to rot. God raised Jesus from the dead in a unique display of power and love and approval. And as John reminded us this morning, uh, the Bible doesn't allow us to kind of wave this away as some sort of metaphor or religious symbolism, as if uh, Jesus rising from the dead means that he, he lives on in his teaching or he lived on in his disciples' hearts. The writers of the Gospels are at pains to show us that Jesus really died and he really rose to life bodily. It's astonishingly good news as we heard this morning. But the resurrection isn't presented to us just as something, something good that happened to Jesus. So we can turn around and say, well, good for him. The resurrection has enormous implications for every single human being who has ever lived. That Jesus rose from the dead on that first Easter Sunday is good news for us, for every single one of us. Now, the New Testament is, is packed full of ways that the resurrection changes everything. Tonight, we're limiting ourselves to just one. And it's one that the Apostle Paul chose to explain uh, to a bunch of extraordinarily clever people who were completely ignorant of God. Uh, he pitches up in Athens, the intellectual capital of the ancient world. And what does he tell them about? Where does he start? Well, at the end of verse 18 of our reading, uh, we read that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. 
why did Paul want them to know about the resurrection of Jesus? People who had heard uh, nothing of the Bible story before this. Why do we need to know about it? And what does it mean, uh, mean for us? Uh, we're going to focus on three things tonight, which Paul expresses, particularly in verses 30 and 31 of Acts 17. Now, firstly, we see that the resurrection means that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Uh, now, are you still with me? Realize that with those words, I may already have lost you. The idea of God's judgment is hugely unpopular. Uh, even Christians can be keen to avoid the idea that there's a, a day of judgment to come. And yet when the Bible talks about that, that day, when it talks about God's judgment, uh, it doesn't do it in hushed tones, hoping that we don't hear, hoping that the conversation moves on very, very quickly. According to the Bible, the fact that God's judgment is coming is fantastic news. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find a greater expression of, of joy and rejoicing than Psalm 98, uh, where the songwriter encourages us to make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break into song and sing praise. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. Well, why all this celebration? For the Lord comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. God's judgment is cause for celebration. Why? Notice those two qualities of God's judgment. They came up in that psalm, but Paul picks them up in verse 31. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. This is a, a global judgment, not just on some people, but on all people. God is going to judge the world. In fact, in other parts of the book of Acts, uh, we can see that the, the resurrection proves that that judgment won't just be for people who happen to be alive at the time, but for all people who have ever lived, past, present, and future. This is a global judgment. And did you see the other detail that we're given in verse 31? He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. How's he going to do it? In righteousness. God's judgment isn't the uh, the threats of a horrible bully, but the promise to bring justice to the world. That God's justice is coming is good news. It's good news for a world that is sick with injustice. Our longing for justice isn't just a, a modern or recent phenomenon. Uh, the philosophers of the ancient world of Greece, uh, the sorts of people that the, the crowd that Paul was addressing would have been uh, very familiar with, they would have been able to quote them chapter and verse, uh, they were obsessed with this idea of justice. How can we be just people? Uh, what would a society of justice look like? And how can we get there? Well, that was about two and a half thousand years ago now. How do you think we're doing? As part of my uh, college course that I do uh, part-time alongside my work here at Duke Street, 
uh, I recently had to do some safeguarding training around abuse. Uh, part of that training uh, was listening to an interview with a, a young lady who had experienced horrific uh, physical abuse as a child. I'll spare you the details, but it was terrible. It's the sort of story that breaks your heart and makes your blood boil all at the same time. Now, she campaigns against this specific form of ab abuse, and that's fantastic. But at the end of the interview, she said something that really made me think. She said something along the lines of, we'll never eliminate this sort of abuse until all human oppression comes to an end. Can you see the problem there? If we look at ourselves, if we look at humanity, there's no hope that we can bring an end to the problems of injustice and abuse and oppression in our world. And we've not managed it yet. There's no signs that we ever will. Left to our own devices, I don't have any hope that that day will ever arrive. The Bible doesn't give us any either. This is one of the reasons why the resurrection should bring us hope. Human history and experience proves that we alone can't get close to bringing justice to the world. That no amount of laws or reform that will bring about true justice. But the resurrection points us to a day that God himself will bring all injustice and abuse and evil to an end. All the wrongs of the world, past, present and future, will finally be put right. And in fact, the resurrection tells us that even death isn't an escape from God's justice. God's judgment is more powerful even than that. Paul says that God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness. It's not a vague hope that one day maybe things will get better. One day maybe God will decide now is the right time to do something. The day is already decided. God has marked it in his calendar. Every moment that day draws nearer. Do you want justice to be done on the earth? The resurrection means that there's good news. God's righteous judgment is coming. Of course, there's good news. But if we know ourselves, there's an elephant in the room here, isn't there? You see, the Bible tells us that the injustices and the evil in the world aren't all out there, but they're in here. As that video explained, all of us have rejected God. We've treated others he's made in his image horribly. We've contributed more than our fair share to the mess this world is in. If we're guilty, how can God's righteous judgment be good news for us? Well, it's the right question to ask. If we were to face God's judgment alone, we would have no hope whatsoever. But the good news is that the resurrection also means that Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the judge. Uh, according to the Chicago Tribune, uh, Thomas J. Maloney had a reputation as a judge who was tough on both criminals and lawyers. Uh, during his 13 years serving in the courts of 
Cook County, Illinois, he built up that reputation for putting criminals behind bars. That was until he was found guilty in 1993 of accepting bribes to fix cases. Now, we're not talking about small sums of money here either. Maloney was accused of accepting over $100,000 in bribe money, and the cases he was uh, fixing, they weren't trivial. He was accused and convicted of fixing three separate murder trials. Imagine that. Criminals walking free, murderers getting away with it just because the judge wanted a bit of extra pocket money. Now, Maloney was caught as the result of a massive FBI operation that saw 92 members of the Illinois justice system indicted for corruption. In fact, Maloney was joined by 16 other judges by being convicted. Now, was Illinois a place of justice during that time? Of course not. So if God's judgment over the world is truly to be done in righteousness, it will need to be carried out by a perfectly righteous judge. And the resurrection shows us that Jesus is the man that God has chosen as that judge. The judge of every single person. The judge of you and the judge of me. And he's the perfect man for the job. Why? Because he is the perfect man. Jesus is God in the flesh, 100% a human being, as human as you or me. And therefore, he knows what it's like to be human firsthand. And Jesus wasn't just human, he was the perfect human. Now, if you read one of the Gospels, uh, which give an account of Jesus' life, you'll quickly see that this is true. It's next to impossible to read the Gospels and not be struck by how fundamentally and totally good Jesus is. And if you've been with us at Duke Street and our morning services over the last uh, few months, have you seen this in Mark's gospel? Have you been struck by how utterly uh, amazing and wonderful and beautiful Jesus is? In Jesus, we see someone with absolute moral purity. Unlike the rest of us, he never put a foot wrong. Even though those who opposed him uh, were experts on God's law and scrutinized his every move, they were never able to bring a legitimate charge against him. When it came to the trial that led to his crucifixion, his enemies resorted to lies, bribery, and mob justice. They had to, because Jesus was perfectly pure. And it isn't just that Jesus never broke the law. He lived a life of unparalleled goodness. He had unlimited divine power. And what did he do with it? What did he use it for? Not for his own comfort or advancement, but to help and heal others, to mend broken bodies, to open blind eyes, to bring hearing to the deaf, to raise the dead. Jesus was powerful and powerfully loving. But the greatest expression of his perfect love came on that first Good Friday when he obeyed the will of his Father and went to the cross. And on the cross, he received the judgment 
of God himself. The punishment that all his people's wrong, all their sin deserves. That was what was poured out on Jesus as he died. Even though he was perfectly innocent, Jesus was fully willing to receive his father's judgment on behalf of his people. And that's Jesus, the perfectly pure, powerfully loving, gloriously powerful son of God. And he died in agony so that his people could escape the judgment that their sins deserved. Can you think of anyone more suitable to judge the world than him? There's only one human being who's ever lived who is up to the task. And God left us in no doubt as to who he is. As Paul says at the end of verse 31, that he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And the resurrection is like a great big spotlight pointing on Jesus. In uniquely raising Jesus from the dead, that God is separating Jesus out from everyone else, from every human being who has ever lived. He's not just a particularly wise philosopher. He's not just one religious prophet among many. He's not even just the pinnacle of human goodness. In raising Jesus to life, God is urging us to pay attention to him. Don't miss him. Don't ignore him. This is the man I've chosen to judge the world. Because of the resurrection, you can know for sure that one day you will face God's judgment. But you can also be assured that it will be the Lord Jesus who is going to judge you. So if we're not to ignore Jesus, what are we to do with him? How should we respond to this one who is going to be the judge of all? Happily, God hasn't left us to guess. God has told us all we need to know in advance of that day when Jesus will judge. Thirdly and finally, the resurrection means we need to repent. We need to repent. In the Gospels, Jesus speaks very plainly about the fact that he will one day judge the entire world. And his account of this is very clear. Uh, his judgment is uh, separation into just two groups. One group will be welcomed into his kingdom of perfect righteousness and justice. That world we all want, they'll receive eternal life. The other group he will send away to eternal punishment. So how will he judge? How will he decide who goes where? Will he judge us on the basis of the lives we've lived, whether we've been good or bad or a bit in the middle? The Bible says if that was the case, none of us could hope to be accepted into his kingdom. Every single person other than Jesus has rebelled against God and deserve his punishment. And there's no bribe we can pay to sway this judge, no lie we can tell to fool him, no pressure we can apply to change his mind about us. There's only one way 
we can avoid receiving the judgment we deserve. And God has made it abundantly clear to us. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The word repent uh, means a complete turnaround, an an about-face turn. Uh, It's a a picture of a complete change. Uh, The Bible pictures human beings as, by default, going away from God, living in his world, but living against him. Uh, We live our lives any which way but his. Uh, So we chase our own dreams, we live with our own priorities, uh, we pursue our own genders, we walk our own path. And the Bible says we need to repent. We need to stop rebelling and rejecting God and turn and put our trust in him. Uh, Faith and repentance always go together uh, in the Bible. If repentance is to to turn away from God and go our own way, uh, faith is to turn towards God and do things his way, uh, to believe what he says in his word, even when we don't want to, to live with his priorities, even when they seem completely backwards to us, to trust that his way of doing things really is the right way of doing things. And at the heart of repentance is our attitude to God's son, the Lord Jesus. Will we stop ignoring him and start following him as our Lord? Will we stop denying him and start acknowledging that he has the right to tell us how to live? Will we Stop rejecting him and say sorry and ask him to rescue us from the punishment that we deserve. Will we trust him that he alone can grant us entry into his eternal kingdom? God says that our response to the risen Lord Jesus in the face of his coming judgment must be repentance. He doesn't recommend it. Uh, He's not giving some uh, fatherly advice, which we're free to disregard. God commands all people everywhere to repent and put their faith in Jesus. And that means that if you've obeyed God's command to repent, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, you can look forward to that coming day of judgment with great joy. You can look forward to joining in that joyful song when Jesus comes to judge the world. You can anticipate the day when you'll join in with the the rapturous round of applause of the rivers and sing in harmony with the hills. You can face that day, the day that God has fixed, knowing that Jesus himself has already paid the punishment for your sins. And that in God's eyes, you have no more wrongs to be put right. On that day, you can put your hope in the warm embrace of the judge as he welcomes you into his kingdom to enjoy eternal life forever. If that's not you, if you haven't yet repented from your sin, and put your faith in Jesus, 
can you see that the, the resurrection shows you you're in a really serious position? God's judgment is surely coming. And Jesus says that for those who won't repent, the future holds only eternal punishment. Now that is a really difficult thing to hear. And it may make you very angry. Angry with me, angry with God. But let me appeal to you. Rather than becoming bitter towards God, which is our it's our instinctive response, isn't it, when we feel judged by anyone? Think for a moment about how kind it is of God to tell you of his coming judgment. Hear me out. If God was a cruel monster who just wants to smash people to pieces, well, couldn't he do that to us at any moment? He's so powerful, he wouldn't even need to justify it. Even a righteous God, a fair God, a just God would have no need to, to warn us about coming judgment when the police carry out a, a dawn raid to capture a criminal unawares. Nobody criticizes them, criticizes them for uh, taking them by surprise, do they? And yet in the resurrection, God has given us all, every single one of us, an early warning that judgment is coming. He's told us all we need to know to avoid being on the wrong side of that judgment. And today, he's being patient with us, with us, giving us the opportunity to turn and repent and trust the Lord Jesus. He's told us as loud and clearly as possible that we need to repent and put our faith in the judge who he sent to pay the price for sin. Because of the resurrection, we know all we need to know for that day, not to be a day of fear and dread, but a day of joy. The resurrection tells us that God's righteous judgment is coming. The resurrection means that Jesus is the judge. And the resurrection means we need to repent. Jesus rose from the dead. How will you respond to him? Let's think about that in a few moments of silence, and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you that you haven't left us guessing about the future, about ourselves, about the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've told us everything we need to know. Lord, please help us to respond uh, to the Lord Jesus as he deserves, with faith. Thank you that the, for the evidence of the resurrection. Thank you for the reality of that day of righteous judgment that is coming. Lord, please help us to live every day in the light of it. In the name of the Lord Jesus.